Occasionally, I have conversations with people who are not happy in their jobs. Sometimes these conversations are about compensation. Sometimes these conversations are about the relationships that are difficult in one's job, perhaps pertaining to a boss. But more often, these conversations are about a lack of personal fulfillment. Many do not experience their job as satisfying, as, a, as providing a sense of vocation. The job is not a calling. Well, today we hear from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was very, very clear that his job was his vocation. He was very clear that God had appointed him to be a prophet to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Well, blessed are those whose job and personal calling align. Not always. Jeremiah hated his job. He would have been happier busting rocks in a mine shaft than being God's prophet. The reasons for this are evident as you read Jeremiah's book. He was a man who loved his people, loved his country, a passionate man with a huge heart, easily broken. And yet God had sent Jeremiah to the people and the country he loved with an almost unbearably heavy burden to convey God's word that, unless they changed their ways, judgment was coming And judgment was coming soon, and it was coming fierce. It is hard to think of any character in the Old Testament who suffers more anguish delivering God's message to God's people. Again, his job caused him a lot of inner misery. We hear this today in the text that was read. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt. I mourn. Dismay has taken hold of me. Jeremiah's life and his ministry occur at the time of mounting crisis, leading up to and including the Babylonian Empire's conquest of Judah in the late 6th century B.C. In the year 587 B.C., The forces of the Babylonian ruler Nebuchadnezzar II sack Jerusalem and take many of its city's inhabitants into exile, the beginning of the Babylonian exile and captivity. But to the people of God, to whom this happened, who were once God's nation Israel, this is the end of the world. In terms of its shock and horror, After it occurs, I can only think perhaps of the fall of the Roman Empire, the fall of Rome itself to the Visigoths a thousand years later is comparable in our Western imaginations. Jeremiah had been given God's eyes as well as God's voice to say this is what's coming. But the people of Jerusalem had paid Jeremiah no heed. They despised his public harangues, his sermons, his prophetic judgments against all levels of Judah's sin-sick cultural life. Jeremiah called out failures that encompassed everybody, corrupt religious leaders, social injustice, immorality of all sorts, repent and turn back or face the consequence of disaster. 
And again, the response to Jeremiah was rejection. A self-satisfied refusal to look honestly in the mirror. A self-confident refusal to look over, at the, over the horizon at what was coming their way. A self-centered refusal to look to God. Jeremiah was thrown in jail. He was thrown into a cistern, presumably to die. He was beaten. He was scorned. In light of that, in the passage we hear today from Jeremiah, there is just this growing acceptance of impending catastrophe. A broken situation that is too late to repair. Things are now too far gone. The sad necessity of judgment. The harvest is over. The summer is ended. Oh, that my eyes were a fountain of tears so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. Now, look, I know that it is hard. It is hard for us reading back through the dusty pages of the Old Testament, looking back through the murk of many centuries, back to an ancient world that seems so foreign to us today, trying to connect our lives to what we hear going on back then. But anyone, any one of us who knows what it is truly to love another person unconditionally, who is in deep trouble, knows this polarity of emotions that we see on display so often in the great prophet Jeremiah. If you love someone deeply who is self-destructive, you find yourself sometimes wanting to hug that one so tightly they can never get away and to wring their neck at the same time. What is it to deliver a hard message of inevitable judgment when your heart aches with supreme compassion. We can ask anyone who's ever loved an addict. A week before my younger brother Bill died his alcohol-related death, um, I spoke to my older brother Jay about what was going on. Bill had just been released again uh, from a detox hospital unit There was, again, a treatment plan, a facility in place for him if he would accept it. My father had spoken to him very bluntly. My brother and I, Jay, spoke to each other very bluntly. We were at that place where there were only three paths left. The situation was that dire. Bill was either going to go to jail, a very real possibility, go to jail. Number two, Bill was going to die. Or number three, Bill would get in recovery and stay in recovery. Seven days later, I heard my phone ring. I picked it up. I looked at the caller ID. I saw my brother's Jay, his number. And I knew before I answered. My eyes were a fountain of tears. So this is where we are today in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not judgmental by nature. Quite the contrary. He loved his people. He wanted nothing more than their welfare. And that's why he hated his job. He could not bear their self-destructive refusal to listen and obey the Lord. 
So why preach about this when we're here for good news? How do we get to that gospel of grace from this place in Jeremiah, this place in the life of God's people? And I know the idea of judgment, that's a tough one for modern mainline Protestants because we associate the word with punishment. But the biblical conception of judgment has less to do with that than with exposure, sort of removing the facade so we can see clearly what is underneath, a sifting out of what is really true from what is merely false or fake or broken. So I think that, truth be known, we live in a kind of semi-conscious dread of being exposed as we really are. And we may internalize those things about us that are not right, and we know they're not right, but we push them down, 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 and they fester as self-loathing, as shame, as fear. And the heart becomes a place of dark secrets, which is a kind of an exile. Babylon is an image of that, an image of dislocation, of alienation, of isolation. How many of us, for example, carry around these hurts and wounds and unforgiveness from way back in other parts of our life? And we'd love to just bracket them out, but they have the effect, do they not, of living on and exiling us from one another, from our true selves, from family, from friends, even from the church in many cases. And just like the ancient Israelites, so many of the judgments we live with are self-inflicted or at very least self-perpetuating. We cannot seem to help ourselves with the help that we really need. And so we pretend that all is well. We put makeup over our splotchy lives And we may reject the messenger who warns us of what life will come to without an honest reckoning, an honest self-examination, and a turning back to God. Or, or, and this is ultimately the role of Jeremiah, we can see the messenger as an agent of grace. Because what if, what if God does his best work with messy, confessional, Babylon people who know that without the Lord, we are headed into crisis. One of my favorite 20th century poets, William Meredith, writes about his fascination with how people deal with crisis, and he sees the opportunities that everyone has in a crisis to grow. He says, there is an appropriate response to anything that befalls a human being and that the game is to find and present that response. So Jeremiah is a crisis book. Jeremiah is a crisis preacher. And every crisis can serve as a medium of grace, though we would to God avoid all crises. But to be honest about the darkness of our lives is not to say that our lives are only dark or even only dark at the core. No. Indeed, the response to crisis is to discern the means by which the darkness is removed and that our true identity in God, in Christ, shines forth.
Meredith in one of his poems has this very brief line. We are all relics of some great joy wearing black. But from whence is our help to come? We cannot restore the fortunes of our personal Zions any more than we can seem to forestall the inevitable ways that our lives are oriented away toward Babylon. Well, there is another image. It is embedded in the text today that points forward to the answer. Is there no balm in Gilead? Jeremiah cries. There is a rare and precious balm, a commodity of trade in the ancient world, extracted from the resinous juices of a particular type of balsam poplar tree. It's an ointment for healing and soothing from this rare type of tree that is found in Gilead. Where is that? Gilead lies across the Jordan River. It is in another country from Judah and Jerusalem. This healing, in other words, comes from outside, from across the great divide between God and ourselves. We are all very familiar with the African-American spiritual. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. There is a balm. It is the blood of Jesus, our only hope and deliverer, whose arms stretched out on the hardwood of the cross hug us tight and will never let us go, exposing the real great truth about us if we would but receive it. We are all relics of some great joy. And through him it has been restored to you.